Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast all about how to get better, faster. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we have another episode in our parenting series, and this is an exciting one. We're interviewing two experts on parenting, and one of them is William Sticksrud, PhD. He's a clinical neuropsychologist and founder of the Sticksrud Group, and he's a member of the teaching faculty at the Children's National Medical Center and an assistant professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at George Washington University School of Medicine. And joining him and us is Ned Johnson, who's an author, speaker, and founder of Prep Matters, an education company providing academic tutoring, education planning, and standardized test prep. He's a tutor geek, and he's been one since 1993. He's spent more than 40,000 one-on-one hours helping students conquer standardized tests, college admissions process, communicating with their parents and educators. And Dr. Sixrud and Ned have written a wonderful book, called The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. And that book is largely what we're going to talk about today. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Great to be here. All right. Well, I come at this from the perspective of somebody who used to be a school principal, and we run, and I would say I certainly did, run this tendency of like wanting to control as much as you possibly can, not because I hope that I'm some kind of dictator, but because of a sense of my own anxiety about the kids that were under my control and wanting the best for them. Your book challenged me to think that that was the wrong way to think about things. Give us the starting point of this. So what's the problem you guys were attempting to address in this book before you get to the solutions? So there were two major things that, that Ned and I, we, we met several years ago and we were lectured a lot about about motivation and about the way stress and insufficient sleep affects kids' development. And we realized that the two major problems we were seeing was, is basically the first thing is this epidemic of mental health problems in, in young people. And secondly, we saw so many kids who had what we considered to be unhealthy motivation in the sense that, that a lot of kids were just obsessively driven. They'd sacrifice their health, their, their friends to, to, to get into an Ivy League college. And others just figured, I'm not going to be a good student. What's the point of trying? And the more we researched and, and thought about this stuff, the more we, we, we realized that the thing that connects these two challenges is a low sense of control. We, we know that we, we learned that a low sense of control is the most stressful thing you can, you can experience, that all the mental health problems that kids have and that we have involve a low sense of control. We also learned that the key to developing that healthy self-motivation where you're driven to develop yourself so you have something useful to offer this world, that all the arrows, we, we, every place we looked, all the arrows point in the direction of autonomy. Kids have to have a sense that this is my life and I'm not just jumping through hoops, I'm not just doing what people tell me to do. And so we figured the sense of control, if it's hugely important in mental health, and it's the key to that self, that healthy motivation. It must be a big deal. And over time, so I think about when I was a kid, I grew up largely in the 90s. One of the things I'm trying to figure out is, well, has something changed recently? Because the data that you cite, even since you wrote this book, I believe the book came out in 2018. Is that right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of the trends you described have only gotten worse since then. And a question we've been asking on this podcast is what has changed? And I think using your framework of control and autonomy. It was true that in a previous era of parenting and digital surveillance and all this kind of stuff, kids just, they would kind of roam free more than they do today and make a lot of their own choices. Sure, there were helicopter parents back then who were forcing their kids to do homework, but it was, it feels like it was less common and less dramatic and the tools that parents were bringing to bear were much different. Whereas today, it seems like a lot of kids 
are kind of under constant surveillance yeah, from their yeah. parents and their schools. And the philosophy of parenting has changed. Am I right about that? Like the parents seem to assume that certain risks that their kids take are not worth it compared to what parents used to think in the nineties where parents seem to be a lot more risk tolerant. I think all of that, I mean, think, think people, when parents are more fearful, they are going to encourage their kids to not take risks or try to keep them from taking risks or to protect them from natural consequences on and on it goes. But to take a half step back, there's a, there's a researcher and a writer named Jean Twenge who may know, who was probably most on people's radar for an article called has the smartphone destroyed generation. And she wrote a book that just came out very well regarded just this spring about generations. And she has studied as in her career, studied generations. And a lot of her work was on a, on a, a personality inventory called the MMPI, where she was looking at people I mean, starting in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and all, all the way up to the present. And she said, generally, when we see generational change, they're very subtle, they're very incremental. It's kind of hard to tease things out. She said, but in the early 2000s, you saw this big upturn in, in, in the amounts of of, of narcissism and, and anxiety and, and stress-related disorders that kids in their early 2000s were five to eight times more likely to endure symptoms of, of major anxiety or major depression than people were during the Great Depression or the Second World War. And then in the 2012, it, went, it, it looked like a hockey stick went straight up. And she said that was the point where, at, at which point more than half the population, American population, had a smartphone. So she's, of course, like a lot of people have put her finger on the smartphone, but the way that we think about it is you can't just blame smartphones or just blame parents or just blame, it's kind of all of it, right? You know, that the, the global climate change isn't your car, my car, this cement factory. It's all of it cumulatively. And it's all fine to keep pushing on kids until we hit a breaking point. <laughs> we, keep, we keep thinking this is as bad as it can get. And, and, then, and, then it, and then it gets even worse. What's your sense of what the data says today about the life of a kid today versus, say, 20 years ago? Like, is there any objective data around, if we were to put a number to how stifling an existence for a kid is today, or is it more qualitative, like interviews, just a sense of how things are? You know, this Twangy data, you know, where she said, I've never seen anything like this spike in anxiety, depression, and loneliness in young people between 2012 and 2017. And she, she just, the new book, it just tracks it. It's, it's even, as you're saying, it's even worse now. These, these things are even worse now. Uh, so there's a lot of objective data, and whether it's related to the fact that kids sleep less, that the, the, the influence of social media, the fact that young children don't play anymore, they don't, they don't engage in that child-directed play that many experts think is the really the key to healthy development. I mean, young mammals play, and now our, our, our young, by the time they're two or three or four, they're, they're on teams or they're playing electronically. It's, it's all adult-driven, all-directed kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of hypotheses about what, what this is about. But I don't think there's any question that the kids feel much more tired and stressed and anxious and experience much more academic pressure. Kids in high-achieving schools one of our colleagues did a study recently on, on three schools in suburban Ohio in high schools and found that like 76% of the kids reported symptoms of either major depression or anxiety disorder or both. And th they, they listed the various possible stressors in kids' lives. And all 12, the, first, the top 12 were all related to school-related pressure. And I think that what's, what's a different part of it now, Robbie, is that kids have this very distorted sense 
that there's only a few ways to, to make be successful in this world. And, and you got you got to kill yourself to get to the most elite college you can, because otherwise you're going to be working at McDonald's. And the very the very disturbing sense of how many ways there are to create a successful and meaningful life. And so when we're thinking about Okay, I think like most people listening to this are gonna be like, all right, I get the problem, but it's like really hard for me to embrace the solutions. I think in part because parents, they are operating from their sense of anxiety about their kids. They're like, oh, if I let my kid, you know, go out and play but on their own, something terrible could happen. Or if I don't like push my kid to get their homework done, they'll get bad grades and then they'll learn to regret it. And I know there's a spectrum here. But you have an interesting framework in your book for how to think about the kinds of autonomy you give to your kids and what your relationship should be. So help us outline the ideal relationship between parent and kid. The ideal relationship between parent and kid would combine two pieces of advice that we give. It would be that you're a non-anxious consultant to your kid rather than the <laughs> boss or the homework police or I always know what's better. You would take a consultative approach and, and it would be like, okay, so, so, so Robert, what, what's important to you? You know, wh wh I try to see what motivates you, what's the outcome that you want, and then say, is there, is there a way that I can, that I can help on this? I, I'll, I'll share a story. I, I have a family I'm working with. Dad is actually a business consultant and very good at the work that he does, but he was kind of frustrated by his second child. The first one was a golden child and went to highly selective, highly rejective college, as we call them in my parlance. Um, and, <laughs> and, this, and the second child was having a harder time. You know, had learning disabilities and ADHD and on it goes. So I get this email from dad saying, I've decided to remove all support from my child. Do you have time to talk? That's quite an email. I'd be happy to talk. So, so just to start, what kind of support were you giving to your kid? Well, I was reminding him all the time about doing his homework. Okay. So how, how many times a day would you remind him? You know, I don't know, maybe, maybe five or six. It was my wife who was really on him all the time. And I'm thinking, so if that kid is home like six hours a day and between the two of them, it's, you know, eight to, every 20 minutes, have you done your homework? Have you done your homework? Have you done your homework? And the more you ask someone that, the less he wants to do it. So I suggested, I said, if I may, let me, let me, let me just, I'm making this up. Let me suggest an approach. When he comes home from school, I ask him, do you have a plan for your homework? And he says, I do. And then I make him show it to him. I said, don't make him show it to you. He's 17. Just ask, do you got a plan? If he says no, I said, would you like me to help you with a plan? And he said, that's it. I said, well, that's step one. Step two, he said, on that plan, is there anything you could, that you need help with? Is there anything I can do that'll be useful to you? And then that's it. Oh, and then step three is if he says, no, dad, I've got it. Then you say, is it cool if I check in in a couple hours just to see if, if, I, if there's anything you need help with? And what we're doing with this approach is we are offering help, we are offering support, but we're also giving the message to kids that they're responsible for this work. I'm not responsible for his work because if the kid wanted to like close his eyes and go, la, 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 what could I do? So you're offering <laughs> support. <laughs> And saying, I see that you got these needs, but I'm not acting like I'm responsible or, or that I know better than you do. And, and because so often when we've pushed and we've forced, then kids fight what's in their own best interest, including doing well in school, just because this need for autonomy, it's a really big effing deal. I mean, you see this in toddlers, do it myself, right? You know, right. <laughs> you know and half the research on this is based on rodents and canines. I mean, these are foundational psychological needs. And then the non-anxious part to it is, you know, if your kid gets a B or a C or a D, you don't act like it's the end of the world. You say, well, golly, that wasn't kind of what you wanted to do. Well, let's talk through this because kids don't want to go to school to be unsuccessful. 
They don't want lives that are unsuccessful. But if we lose our minds about a bad grade, this is what leads kids to either to give up and say, why even bother? And they handicap themselves or they start cheating because if getting an A is the most important thing, how you get it doesn't really matter. And there's just, it's a world of hurt when we create a position when we as parents respond so intensely that our kids then don't bring problems to us in part because if we want to help, we can only solve problems that we know about. And we don't want our kids hiding the hard stuff from us. I also think that if you play out the best case scenario and in, in, in what you just described, let's say the kid comes home and you're like, do your homework for two hours before you could watch TV. And the kid is totally compliant, which I've seen this before. Some of my friends, when I was growing up, those kids never, you run the risk. I don't want to ma- mm-hmm. be absolute mm-hmm. about this. You run the risk that the kid never connects the dots between like the the task and their own volition right they don't they don't they don't learn to see it as something that they control they drive right and so when they go off to college and the parent isn't there anymore to tell them what to do they have to develop a whole new framework or they fail right or that like you know what i see a lot of times when i went to college because i had a mom who worked two jobs so she never told me what to do with my homework and i didn't do a lot of it i actually wound up getting like subpar grades in high school but i went to college And I completely locked in, in a way that compared to like my best friend who went to college with me, her dad used to make her always do her homework. She was out partying all the time. I think in part because by the time she got to college, she was like, all right, well now I could finally make my own choices (laughs) and she make different choices. Right. But yeah, so even the best case scenario seems problematic. Yeah. And you know, one of the really informing experiences of my life was uh, early on in my career, I've always worked with a lot of underachievers and I'd ask them, if you don't turn in an assignment, who's most upset? And invariably they'd say my mom. And then I'd use the family therapy <laughs> technique and say, who's next most upset? They say my dad, then, <laughs> then who? Then my teacher, then my, then my tutor, then my therapist, then my, you know, and then, the kid, then my dog, yeah, yeah, then my dog <laughs> you know, who, 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 uh, who would eat the homework if I did it, if I did it. But, but I just realized that, they were never on the list. They had a very distorted sense of who's responsible for what. You know, and as Ned says, it's not, we don't want kids to fail. It's sometimes people hear our message. And they, so you're saying, just let them fail. We're saying, not, no, we're saying, give them any help that they need. Offer any kind of advice. Share your wisdom if they're open to hearing it. Just don't act like somehow you could make them do it. Like you're responsible and they aren't because you're going to weaken them. Because they're going to grow up thinking that somebody is other than other than them is responsible for getting stuff done or, or deciding what's important or prioritizing their, their time. Um, just, just kind of like the, the person that you grew up with that you mentioned. And so we're talking a lot about homework. Let's broaden it out. Like make this real in some other areas of, you know, I think we're, there's a certain period of childhood, right, that it's worth mentioning that we're most concerned about. So maybe we talk about what the critical years are that you spend a lot of time thinking about, but also broadening it out outside of homework to say like, all right, here, here are some areas of, of childhood development where you want to, you know, sort of be less controlling and more the consultant. Well, one of the things that we worry a lot about are all the different technologies that are used to surveil kids, to track their grades to the moment, but also their location to the meter. And these are things, the, these technologies, in, in some ways, if kids have this idea that they're constantly being surveilled by their parents, well, then they're also going to be very comfortable having the whole world surveil them. And, and I'm not 
we're not such a big fan of that. It also can give kids the idea that in, in a moment of peril, mom or dad is going to drop from the ceiling like you know, Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible on a wire and extricate them. <laughs> and if, if they think that someone else is responsible, I mean, and, and, and granted, when it's a toddler, you, know, you, you don't let a toddler walk across the street and they can have a fit. And I don't care. You pick them up and you carry them across the street. But as they get to be tweens and then teenagers, we, we really can't give the message that somehow I'm responsible for your safety at all time because it's not true. You know, as soon as my kids leave the household, I, you know, front, front door, I can't, I'm not watching them all the time. And we're trying to coach kids and teach kids to be, re to be responsible for themselves and for their friends. You know, with all the, you know, Life 360 and this kind of thing, when I talk to teenagers, they say, well, if, if my mom has none of my thing, I, I go over to Bill's house. I say, yeah, I'm going to be hanging out at Bill's. I leave my cell phone at Bill's house. And then we all go off to Robbie's house for the party because I don't want my mom to know that I'm there. And so you sit there and think, well, okay. So then if something really goes south, this kid is without <laughs> a, 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 her, her technology, without a way to communicate people to ask for help. And you, you, it's, 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 endless. I mean, my kid, when he was four, he was so fascinated by knives. And my wife kept saying, you know, no, it's not safe. No, it's not safe. No, it's not safe. So of course, when she's out of the room, he picks up a knife and starts trying to use it. And invariably he cuts himself, right? Where she could have taken time. So, okay, you want to learn how, there's a wonderful book called 50 dangerous things. It's like, let your kids play with fire and other things to do. And so <laughs> the world has risks. Of course it has risks, but no kid wants to cut off his fingers or get, or get stuck in a snow drift without a cell phone. But we have to, we have to acknowledge that it can't over time, it cannot be our job to keep our children safe, but to teach them how to keep themselves safe. And this goes partly back to the idea of a non-anxious presence when, when kids do things foolish, which they, you know, this is teenagers take risks and we want there to be natural consequences for this, but we don't want to go to pieces over everything that a kid does poorly because then they're not going to bring problems to us. And we don't get to be part of the solution as they tangle with things that are much more worldly than, than a toddler faces. Robbie, can I add a couple other points about just broadening this idea about beyond homework? Yes. One is that there's, chapter in our book called It's Your Call. And the idea is that we want to support kids in making their own decisions as much as possible. And, and I felt my whole career that the best message you can give a teenager, besides I love you, is that I'm confident that you can make decisions about your own life and learn from your mistakes. And I want you to have a ton of experience doing that before you, you go off to college or wherever you go after, after high school. And so our motto is let kids make decisions and go with their decisions unless they're crazy, meaning almost any reasonable person say that's a terrible idea. And there's sometimes where, where kids, kids are really deeply depressed or they're using drugs or they have an eating disorder. There are times where we have to do a power play. But for the most part, because as Ned says, kids want their life to work. They want to be successful. And we want to support them in becoming good decision makers. And so virtually anything, did you, which, which sport do you want to play? And I was actually lecturing about this a few years ago before the pandemic. And this guy came up to me and said, I just finished my doctoral dissertation on promoting autonomy in two-year-olds. And in part, by, by you want to do it this way or this way, letting them know that you, <laughs> you, you, gotta, you, you have preferences of your own. I respect that. I, I, I don't always know what you want, or I, I don't even always know what's best for you. So it's decision-making, and it's also problem-solving. It, it turns out that the part of the reason that, that, that we have so many mental health problems is, is, is that we've tried to remove any stresses that, that kids could, could, could actually master. And it's that process of mastering stresses and solving your own problems that changes the brain in a way 
that turns you into a coper. So it's, and it's, I, I have I, you know, confidence. I can handle this. And, and you don't avoid stressful things. You don't flip out or you, you, don't, you don't panic. And kids don't have enough of those experiences. So we say, if a kid has a problem, remind yourself whose problem is it? And don't, rather than just jumping in to try to solve it for them. This is, is there, as, as Ned said, is there a way that I could help? Do you want to talk about that? I've got an idea about that. Can I run it by you? you want to hear my, you know, why don't I think about that? You make it tentative. But you don't jump in and try to solve it for them. If I go back to them, when my son, when my son tried to <laughs> snip off the end of his finger, when I realized he wasn't dying, I, we said, okay, let's go. Over. So well, you, you've got to cut here and explain to him how blood is actually good and it cleans the cut. And we went over and showed him how he wants to put under, run soap and water under and showed him how to put his own Band-Aid on and on. And now he knows sort of basic first aid, right? And 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 he, I was there the whole time, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't picking him up and running him upstairs to the bathroom because you, you don't learn to do hard things without doing hard things. And we just, we don't want our children to leave the house after high school, never having done hard things. It's like a declawed cat. Good luck, you know, good luck out there in the wild, kiddo. I mean, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's everything. And the other thing about the, the, the to Bill's point about them having, letting kids make decisions. And that's crazy for some parents because they think, oh my gosh, she doesn't understand the long-term ramifications of this. But decision-making is incredibly complex because it's not only paying attention to what you want and what you value and, and, and weighing you know, time with this person, time with that person, how else I could be spending my time, but it's a lot of pro-con thinking. And we want kids to go through that hard thinking about making decisions because it's sure not like the decisions they make later in life are going to be less important than the ones they make now. Yeah. And you have a framework for the different kinds of stresses that kids can encounter and what's an acceptable stress or not. So you you talk about positive stress, tolerable stress, and then toxic stress. And I think this gets to, you know, how different parents in different contexts, you know, they, they're just dealing with way, way different, you know, um, threats, external threats. So if, you, if you're in the wrong neighborhood and you let your kid roam around and you're reading a free range parenting book, it's very different to allow your kid to be quote unquote free range in one neighborhood that might have gang violence or other threats on the streets versus if you're in a neighborhood that's like in a quiet suburb where there isn't a lot of crime, right? For instance, and and that context is important. And I think that fits within your framework. So you want to talk a little bit about how you think about like the acceptable versus unacceptable stressors to put your kids through? There's an outfit at Harvard called the, um, I think it's called the Foundation for the Developing Child, for the Study of the Developing Child. And they've, they've formulated this idea that, that, that positive stress is the kind of is is a stress you experience where it's, it's like excitement. You know, you you're, you got a game coming up, or you, you got you're performing in some way. You're, you're taking a test, and it's a way that of, of optimizing your brain because you don't perform that well unless you have a certain level of stress chemistry, and, and so it puts you into a, a more alert state, a more hyper focused state to, to really perform well. And then, so that they call that positive stress. And tolerable stress can be really hard things, including you know, losing a parent or parents getting divorced. But tolerable stress doesn't go on forever. And it happens in the context of support, where there's people who you know, love people who love you and, 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 and encourage you and, and, and listen to you and, are, and show empathy. And toxic stress is stress that either goes on forever or that, that happens and there's no support. And so even in really highly stressful, highly challenging environments, that level of support is just enormous, the level of empathy and support. 
And also, even, even in the most challenging environments, what we want, ideally, what we communicate is bravery. Uh, and it doesn't mean you go, you know, it doesn't mean be crazy and put yourself at risk <laughs> unnecessarily. But it means rather than having a fearful attitude, have a brave attitude. And I think that, that we, we love this idea that, that that rather than rather than protecting kids from everything, ideally, what we do is, is we we culture that kind of non-anxious presence. So we, we talk about non-anxious presence, where we aren't overly anxious, we aren't overly reactive, and we model courage rather than fear. And you talk about in your book how you go through some of the basic neuroscience here, essentially saying that the brain essentially develops according to how it's used, and by giving kids the opportunity to make their own decisions, they're, you're training them to be responsible adults, right? Versus like if you're constantly telling them what to do, then they're, they're, the sort of grooves, if you will, to use a crude metaphor in their brain are going to be, they're, they're going to be developed in a way to take orders as opposed to be self-directed, if, if that makes any sense. And I think actually, now that I have you here, Ned, I think this is good timing to talk about the the sort of college prep industry, college, you know, like the sort of pressures around college, standardized testing. You you've you've been involved for a long time in preparing kids for college and for standardized tests. Has that world changed a lot, uh, or is it just the environment around it, like the the way parents interpret it and how they've sort of put their foot on the gas more. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot, there's a lot that's changed. There's one of my, one of the favorite articles I've ever read about this. James Fallows, who writes for the Atlantic had a piece all the way back in 2005 with the title of new college chaos. And it described the forces that make the process of college so much more frothy. So, so unpredictable. And so it's the common application and, you know, people in wait list, I mean, on and on it goes, but, but mostly things that, that lead to unpredictable predictability so that it used to be woman. So I graduated college in high school in late eighties, people would apply to two, three, four, five schools. Now kids, you know, a dozen or, or, you know, or two dozen schools. And what happens is they apply to so many schools because they really don't, they, they don't have any real certainty at all that they'll get into, particularly for these highly selective colleges. They don't really have any sense of whether they're going to get in or, or not. And colleges also admit tons of people because they don't know who's going to come into. So the whole process is incredibly fraught frothy. You couple that with what, what feels like the outsized gains going to people from these universes versus those universes. And, and you understand why, you know, there are probably 50 colleges that are highly, highly, highly re rejective, really. And then there are hundreds and hundreds of colleges that are pretty close to open admissions. But we have this thing where everyone's focused on, I, I know that you did your graduate work at Yale. And, and I mean, people would, some people would give mm -hmm. their left arm, right? If they could. If they could go to if they could go to Yale, and it's intense from a stress perspective. There's one of the the researcher named Sonia Lupian, whose work we like a lot, says you can summarize what 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 makes people nuts with the acronym of nuts. So N is novelty, U is unpredictability, T is perceived threat, really threat to ego if it's not a, a life threat, and then a low sense of control. And college admissions kind of gets at all of those because it, it keeps changing in ways that makes what I knew as a parent not particularly useful to my kids. So it's a new situation for us. Wildly unpredictable. So many people have their egos tied up to threat to ego. And then, of course, a low sense of control. No wonder, no wonder it makes this pro process really intense. And much like the, the research of Gene Twenge, it just seems to get harder and harder and worse and worse every single year. Yeah. And I think like as people look at it, 
people listen to this podcast, although we do have people in the higher education industry, most people are on the side of being parents or educators. And I think the question for them is, all right, well, what can you control in this situation about Mm -hmm. your own behavior and how you set up an environment for kids? It sounds like the way to handle this is to lower the temperature a little bit and, and correct me if I'm wrong, to be like, hey, like settle down on the you have to get into Yale type of conversation and more like, hey, like help the kids set their own goals. And often what's going to come out is some, you know, the kid's goal is probably going to be something that by nature, it's their goal. So they'll be successful if they meet it, but Mm -hmm. it'll probably be something that would make any parent proud if they were well adjusted about it. Right. So, well, maybe they don't want to go to Yale, but they want to, you know, they want to you know, study, they want to be a teacher and maybe they want to go to the city college of New York or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that gets them, you know, mm-hmm. that gets them with any, maybe they get into Yale by accident. Right. But like, it's not like this tremendous pressure. Right. I think there are two big, yeah, I, 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 I agree with all of that. And I think there are two big things that we would note. One is that, and, and we say this to every school and every parenting group that we ever lecture at. And it's this, that the most important outcome of high school and adolescence is not the college that you go to is not the college you go to. It's the brain that you develop and carry into college if you go to college or work or whatever. The, the brain that you develop in adolescence that you carry into adulthood. Full stop. Because obviously there are advantages in going to Ivy League schools, but there are also people who, who, achieve, who the, the, the amount of mental health challenges at Yale and other places like that, it's just, it's ridiculous because the same pressure that they put themselves under to achieve at this insane level is the same pressure that undoes their mental health. And so we just want kids to, to be successful, but we want them to do it in a way that's sustainable, that you're not going to peak at age 19. And the, and the second point, if you go back to that Sonia Lupian, she said one of the single best ways to lower stress is to have plan B thinking. Of course you want to go to, you know, Princeton, you look great in orange, fantastic, but it's simply not the case, you know, that it's Yale or jail. That's funny. That's what my mom literally used to say to me. Is that right? She said you would go to Yale or jail. That's funny that you said that. We, we were in Palo Alto lecturing and uh, there's there's a there's a, a, a anecdote in the self-driven child where Bill was lecturing to school, and the, at the end of which this this AP English teacher says, you know, here the kids all think it's Yale, it's Yale or McDonald's, and, and Bill's we're out in Palo Alto. Bill's telling the story, and the superintendent raises her hand. She says, well, here the kids say it's Yale or jail. We thought, oh, that's much more clever. And 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 I, we finish this lecture, turn our phone back on. We're there at the epicenter the day that Varsity Blues drops. Oh my God! And you mean the scandal, not the the. The great '90s movie. He's <laughs> like, "Oh my god, we need to get to the theaters." Varsity Blues is out. But you know, it's funny about the Yale. I used to remind my mom, and it, it was a joke, but it it also gets at the absurdity of the choice. Is that like, there's no reason why I couldn't do both. Like, I could go to Yale. I know plenty. I know plenty of people who've done both, and I think it gets at. It's a joke, although, but it gets at the the core of it, which is. Going to Yale doesn't solve anything uh, in terms of your character development. It certainly opens up certain doors, but I've met many kids who are lost at Yale. And if I compare it with my experience at the State University of New York at Binghamton, it was a better learning environment at Binghamton, way more supportive. And honestly, if I had gone to Yale undergrad before I went to Yale Law School, I would have been crushed because I needed the time to operate in the environment of Binghamton where I had the support that they were offering. I was with 
more people. Basically, it was a level up. I grew up in Staten Island in kind of a middle-class neighborhood that didn't have a lot of people that went to college. So going to Binghamton was a stretch for me. It was like, wow, okay, like there's kids from Long Island and upstate New York and who went to Stuyvesant and yada, yada. That was almost training ground for me to even be able to handle the pressures of Yale. And if I had gotten right into Yale, I see a lot of kids now that I talk to who, because of the universities have been recruiting from you know more diverse places, not nearly diverse enough, they're enrolling kids who are kind of shell-shocked upon entrance, you know? Yeah. You know, I just, I'm a neuropsychologist and I test kids. I just, in April, I tested two high school seniors in April. And both of them were obsessively driven, uh, building, their whole adolescence was building a resume to get the most elite college they could. And I said, as part of my interview, I said, are there times when you feel really happy? And both kids said, I felt happy the day I got into college. They didn't say, I've, I've been really happy since I got in or for the month I got in. It was that day. It lasted a friggin' day. And in our new book, we have a chapter called Talking with Kids About the Pursuit of Happiness because kids grow up with this very distorted model of what makes people happy. And we talk about the, wor the work of um, the gal at Yale, the psychologist, who, who yeah, Laura Santos, who was living in residential dormitories and realizing these undergraduates they got themselves into arguably the most elite college in the world, and they're miserable. They don't enjoy anything about being at Yale. They don't sleep enough. They're, they're highly stressed. They're competitive with each other. And so we, we, we do a lot of talking with young people about, about the truth is that it, it really is true. It doesn't make that much difference. And, and certainly kids in high-achieving schools, affluent families, much higher risk. The middle class kids for anxiety disorders, depression, chemical abuse, certain kinds of delinquency. And so I think that we want parents to understand that the best thing for a kid is, is not going to necessarily the absolute elite college. I, I did my training as a psychologist, my, my, my internship as a fellow of the Harvard Medical School. But I was a C-plus student in high school and, and, um, and needed to go to state university and kind of get, get my learn how to do school. But the, the idea that somehow, we, I, I asked these 15-year-olds in Houston, I said, what, what uh, these student leaders, what, what do you understand about what it takes to be happy in adult life? And this one kid said, we, well, we understand that if we get into a good enough college, everything is set. And I'm, I'm knocking my head against the whole, how could they possibly be so wrong? We were responsible for that in some ways. I mean, it's different populations, right? We're hearing different messages, right? So if you talk about the suburban family and the way they talk about college is different than, for instance, like those of us who were doing, I was a charter school principal and, and for a long time, our singular focus was getting kids into college. Sure. And it's like an understandable, I look back on it and I'm like, and, and I don't, I don't fully think it, the whole project was a mistake because I think what we're overcorrecting for low college going numbers. I think the, the the error was not in the direction, but it was in the valence of it and the lack of depth to it. We were treating it like statistic as opposed to like, a. Per, I hate the term the whole child, but like we weren't saying this is the good life or this is what you want. It's more like, hey, like if you don't do this this is the Yale or jail thing, right? If you don't get into college, you're going to be a statistic, right? And I think that a lot of us who were in that work during that period of time look back with some regret. Not not that we didn't have high standards for the kids, but the way we went about it. Like I feel like if we had used your approach, we have, we have a chapter in our in our in our second book. I think that gets to to that. It's a chapter about what about expectations. 
And one of the things that you certainly know from your work and your colleagues is that high expectations for kids, is in, high academic expectations is incredibly correlated to their academic success. And we know that under-resourced kids and historically marginalized kids are very often you know, dealt the sort of subtle bigotry of low expectations, as, as George Bush famously said. And so, to, 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 so when we, we, we talk, we have the story, we call it the, 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 sto the story of two sweatshirts. And so the, the, the Pulitzer Prize women book, The Hope and the Unseen, where this, this poor, this under-resourced mom from Baltimore buys her five-year-old kid a Harvard sweatshirt would basically do the, your, your Harvard material too, because the, the forces around his life aren't really giving him the message that he is a person who can be there too. And so those healthy expectations are rooted in, we have every confidence that you can do this. We have every confidence that do you, you want can to hear the craziest version of that story, by the way. So I was in Binghamton university. I was a chemistry major. I was planning to go to medical school. At this point, my mom was a nurse. Uh, she had raised me uh, working two jobs on an associate's degree uh, as a nurse. But when me, my brother, and my sister all went off to college, uh, my mom pursued a degree in history and became a history professor eventually. But as she was in the middle of that process of becoming a history professor, she was like, I want to go to New Haven to visit the museums. Do you want to come visit me? So I was in college. I visited. I go there. I think it must have been my sophomore year. We stay overnight. She tours the law school. At this point, I had no sense I was going to go to law. I'm two years into my pre-med degree. She, she talks to the guy at the front desk, the security guard, and she goes, hey, this is my son, Ravi. He's going to go here one day. <laughs> to the security guard. <laughs> you know how crazy that is? And I wound up going there. And, and it was, it, the odds couldn't have been harder. Like At that point... I was at Binghamton where I think it had been 20 years since somebody who was at Binghamton had went to Yale Law School. Never mind, I wasn't even pre-law. Such a strange, you know, like the expectations matter. Yeah, it does. And and that's a beautiful story of this where she just says with a completely straight face and all the conviction that only a loving mother can muster that this is where my kid's going to be. This is where he belongs. Where the toxic expectations are that you have to, you must, you know, to be, to be all right in my eyes, you have to to do this thing. And that's where things really get sideways, right? Because if you had uh, whatever had happened and you were falling off that path and your mom had lost her mind, like you're going to be this huge disappointment, not to yourself, but to her, that's when the energy gets really. And so when I think about maybe some of the kids at your former school who felt like, you know, I have to, but I can't, that's, 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 that's a place we want to keep kids out of. Yeah. Well, okay. So you guys now have two books out and as you think about the world we're in right now, where are you spending most of your time? Like what's the, you know, to the extent there's a third book in the works or just even in your head, like what are the major unanswered questions that you're left with as it relates to this question of, of child development, parenting, school, that sort of overlap? I'm a little embarrassed to say that <laughs> the major question for me is how do we get get people to take this seriously? I mean, it, it, I mean the, 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 the evidence that this approach, it just works. It just, it, you know, the, the idea that somehow you could make your kid turn out a certain way, uh, that you're supposed to be able to do that is, is crazy. It, it's impossible. And this, this is so, so healthy for parents, so healthy for kids, and it just works. And the, the, the question for me is, how do we get more people to understand that it's safe? It's safe to take this approach and trust kids and support them but, but not be overly controlling. And I think that there's so much, there's so much, there's hundreds and hundreds of studies 
on this role of autonomy in, in pr promoting healthy mot motivation. There's, there's dozens of studies on, on this low sense of control related to anxiety disorders, depression, all that stuff. And I think we've got plenty of evidence to know that th th this, this is what we need to do. And we're actually working with a group of ed educators around the country who are, trying to, who are really focused on promoting student autonomy, um, in part, in large part, to promote that academic engagement. And once they understood the huge relationship between autonomy or sense of control and mental health, that they enlisted Ned and I to kind of work with them and helping educators understand that, that we've, got to, we've got to get away from this command and control standards model and focus more attention on, on, on students and learning. And to add to that, one of the real challenges, of course, and, and you know this in your, your former role, is that you as an educator, you know, and every educator in the country feels responsible for the, the, the standardized test scores, the grades, the whatever of this or that kid. But it ends up, it ends up increasingly, invariably taking the control, the sense of control out of kids and, and, and putting it in the, in the hand of, of parents and educators. And I, I always joke and, and imagine myself being like the soccer coach of like a bunch of second graders, right? And we, they've got to freaking make the playoffs. Otherwise, I don't get a bonus or I lose my job. What a crazy approach that would be, right? But that's in some ways what we have going on with school right now. And so, so we were, we were in Chicago, I forget which suburb in Chicago, very, very affluent place. And, and uh, we're talking to these middle school folks and this, this um, woman stood up at the end and says, I love this approach. This makes so much sense. And, but then she, then she took this hard pivot into like the twilight zone. She said, but, but we really have to do well because kids have to do well in these scores, right? Because these, these scores are so, what makes everyone live in this town, right? And, and if our scores go down, you know, people want to live here and the real estate values will fall. And I thought we're gonna we're gonna pin you know the livelihood of a bunch of real estate agents on on what happens you know on what on a second grader does on a test, and it's so wrongheaded for all the reasons that Bill mentioned, but also when we look at the incidence of mental health disorders, particularly in teenagers. Good luck finding a therapist, right? You, 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 they, can't, they can't scale up to meet the need, the psychological needs and thought where we have, we have kids for six hours a day or more if we were using school in ways that support their mental health and their healthy engagement and fostering their sense of control rather than trying to fix mental health if we actually used our world and their lived experience to prevent the development of mental health problems that would be that seems like that'd be a worthwhile use a good roi on all of our taxes it seems to me that i felt for years that anything that makes life more chronically stressful for kids their parents and their teachers is going to be counterproductive because chronic stress is terrible for the brain it's, it's terrible for learning it's terrible for for the, the physical and emotional health of your brain and so so, so many the, the changes in education over the last 30 years you know, with this increasing standards and control and, and focus on here's what you need to do versus who are you as a person and let's support you as a person. It's guaranteed to, to, to produce terrible results because now kids are more anxious than ever. Their teachers are more anxious than ever. They're, they're retiring and getting out of education at record rates. And, and, and the administrators are, are, are stressed. Parents are stressed. You know, it's a stressful enterprise. And that's not going to be good for anybody. And so we, we need to develop a system that focuses on really what makes people stressed. Well, it's this low sense of control. And let's support, let's support autonomy. Kids need structure and they need direction and they need limits. But within that, 
give them as much decision-making power as possible, focus as much as we can on their own interests, and offer us help rather than trying to force it. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Where can we, I mean, I imagine we find your books anywhere. I downloaded it off of uh, my Apple app. But uh, where, where should folks find your books? We advocate local book bookstore, or if you want to give more money to that Bezos guy, he probably could take it over <laughs> there <laughs> at, at Amazon. But uh, and, and we have a website, it's theselfdrivenchild.com, and I mostly handle the social media. So we're on Twitter and Instagram and all this kind of stuff, uh, either add Ned Johnson or Self Driven Child. So yeah, say, I haven't mentioned the, the, the title of the, the, the second book is called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids About uh, to Develop Motivation, Stress Tolerance and a happy home. It's, it's about ways to communicate with kids that help develop this healthy sense of control, the sense of their, their life. And we re revisit some of the same topics in terms of the non-anxious presence or being a parent consultant, but from an angle of communication, there's a lot of language. Here, here, here's what you say. <laughs> and, and so many parents say, oh my God, this has really transformed my relationship with my kid, that this, um, this kind of approach and, and getting this specific language that actually uh, Ned's had spoken with kids for 50,000 hours and I probably didn't, but I'm older and probably more than that. So stuff works. Well, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us and fun to talk with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at, at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.